My name is Jason Fleming. And my name is Julie Muir. And this is the More Than My Past podcast from, from the, the Forward, Forward Trust. Trust. The first of our new series of themed episodes is all about family. As I know from my work with Forward, difficult family backgrounds are sadly common among those who fall into the grasps of addiction or offending. Family members can also provide vital sources of support for people struggling to overcome difficult pasts. In this episode, we explore both the positive and negative roles which family members can play. There are plenty of uplifting moments in store, but we should warn that this episode does also contain descriptions of violence and abuse which some might find difficult to hear. Our previous episode titled Introduction to Series 2 includes the backstories of the inspiring people you're about to hear from. So, for a bit more context, have a listen to that one first. I kind of um, fell into this podcast through work that I was doing in the prison. Although my dad was officially in AA and was really successful with it. And it was a huge part of his life, a huge part of his life. Mum And mum used to, I remember getting up in the morning I mean, this is just, we were just steeped in booze. The whole, whole of my childhood was just felt like it was just pickled with booze. And we used to get up in the morning. Mum, it's just recently passed, otherwise I wouldn't be able to tell you this because she would go, Jason, what the hell are you seeing on national radio? <laughs> but we'd get out in the morning to go to school and she'd go, right, where's the car? And she wouldn't have a clue where the car was. Not a clue. And we'd all run up and down streets and look where it could possibly be. It was just the norm. Goodness. But what's your history with uh, alcohol and incarceration? So my family history, I mean, we're Irish to start. Yeah. So I think alcohol runs through the blood. Um, Mine is Scottish, so it's the same thing. Same thing. And for me, I mean, my dad never found AA and would probably tell you that he never had a problem with drink. Yeah, yeah. But medically had to stop drinking and life changed for the better when he did stop drinking. Yeah. That's Become amazing, a lot more settled, Yeah. <laughs> Time to hear about the family histories of our guests on this series. Some of the people we talked to spoke of trauma handed down between generations. Here's Jane Shea on how she feels she grew up within her parents' trauma. So like my dad died when I was six months old. So I think about my mum and I think she was 21 years old. She was married, had me and widowed within a year. So she was in whatever that trauma, whatever, whatever that did to her. We went back to live with my nan and granddad, so we shared a little two single beds in um, my nan and granddad's flat. And then you had my mum, and my mum was a bit of a party girl, loved a gangster. And then she met my stepdad, who also came from a lot of trauma. He grew up in um, criminality, got involved in criminality when he was really young. And then he had a sister who um, – he introduced his sister to a guy, and she got in a, into a really – really difficult relationship and she ended up killing herself so then this is my stepdad and he adopted me so when I think about my childhood it was growing up within that trauma of my mum and my dad wow what a start that's that's a lot and you describe that so well former prisoner Mary Claire O'Brien now runs a brilliant social enterprise called New Leaf like Jane she suffered a family bereavement that had a big impact on her life it started her down a path that would lead to drug and alcohol abuse and eventually a serious crime. Family was a big trigger for me in terms of uh, the reasons why I went to prison, but probably not for the reason that you'd think. So bereavement, really. Um, lived with my dad from the age of 15 when my parents split. 
and um, loved him. He was my person and we had a great relationship, a really healthy father-daughter relationship, although there was dysfunction as there is in all families. Um, unfortunately, he got diagnosed with terminal lung cancer when I was 19 and there were no terms around young carers or anything back then. Um, I'm 42 now, so it was a long time ago. But that's what I became, a young carer for him and nursed him through uh, his cancer until he died at home with me when I was 21. And from there, just spiralled into the abyss, really. Just lost control of of everything. I was a professional woman before that. I'd been an estate agent, earning thousands of pounds a month. I was you know, top three in the company. I was a bit of an overachiever, a bit of a geek. And then life changed. I just became a... A really angry, sad individual that used copious amounts of drugs to cope with that loss, basically. And ultimately, two and a half, three years later, led to me, led to me drink driving, um, which was a really common thing back then. I was drink driving all the time. Um, I was always high and I had a car crash. Um, I went to a, a free bar event drinking for 12 hours and ended up with my friend in the car who was um, a 47 year old father of five I was 26 I think 25 at the time um, and I had a car crash with him in the car and he died instantly due to me hitting a tree so that's why I went to prison deserved to go to prison gosh wow it's really powerful music producer and record label owner Corey Johnson was a third generation offender before he went straight He explains how he feels his family's problems were shaped by his grandfather's experience of immigration from the Caribbean. When we came here with Rinrush as a community, part of the stipulation of getting the free housing, you had to be married. So because you weren't married, the fathers weren't allowed to be in the home. So then the single parent homes was created for us. You had to be married to get the housing? Yeah, and if you weren't, then the husband, the it father... Couldn't then be under that roof. So then if the father's there once a week or every other week, he's no longer the man of the house. Yeah, yeah. Your grandfather. Yeah, he granddad. Bu- he bunked onto, not onto Windrush, but... Yeah, yeah. He, like he, he, bunked, yeah he, he bunked onto, onto, um, bunked onto a banana boat and came here. That's, yeah, so and he... And just jumped off the boat when he got here? No, he got arrested on the boat and um, put straight into prison. So he'd done six months as a stowaway. Um, and then, yeah, came out of prison. Um, my granddad um, couldn't read or write or anything, but he was just good at making money. So um, him and his friends, yeah, they had to hustle their way up. It's funny, Jules, we were just talking about our childhoods being kind of pickled in booze. And I think there's a certain amount of chaos that runs from generation to generation. In my experience, it's rare to find someone who's inside for whatever they're inside for that hasn't got a historical family history of incarceration. Or I was speaking to someone at the last weekend and he was saying, oh, you know, it's interesting because during lockdown it was all right because I was in in the cell with my brother. And I was like, what what do you mean? He goes, yeah, yeah, we were on the same wing. They tried to separate us, but we were in a cell together for, for eight months. And he was talking about the pros and cons of being locked up with your brother. But... The fact is, it just seems to be a generational thing that comes from the father and from the grandfather down through generations. It's Maybe it is to do with it being normalised by historical uh, events. What do you think, Jules? No, I agree. I, I recall um, one female prison where they had the mother and her two twin daughters in the same prison. For three different offences? Three separate offences. Oh Absolutely tragic. Yeah. And I think you're right. I think it it becomes normalised. I mean, statistically, if your 
parent and your grandparent has been in addiction and ended up in prison, then the odds are that you will probably end up another statistic of mm-hmm. of a child of until I think there's a major sever in your addiction or your offending in that you rehabilitate and you find a program mm-hmm. where then you can change your life to stop reoffending and actually, you know, open your eyes to addiction. You're then creating a different pathway mm-hmm. for those you know, in, follow in, you. Yeah, exactly. Absolutely. It's fantastic. I think, that, I think that's so true, Jules. That the, just in in the you know in the five or six years that I've been doing it, it just seems to be. It, it's almost like a sentence in itself. If you're if you're born into a family that is uh, surrounded by abuse and and addiction and um, criminality, so to be able to keep veer away from that alone without help seems a, a huge, huge and almost impossible task. Exactly. Unstable, violent or abusive family backgrounds were a recurring theme among the former addicts and offenders who we spoke to for this series. Drug abuse can function as a way to escape these kinds of circumstances, as a recovering addict, Raf Chavis explained. Uh, I grew up in a house where externally things looked great. You know, my father was and he still is a very successful lawyer in Brazil. Uh, very successful, makes a lot of money, knows a lot of influential people in Brazil. Um, you know, my mom was a dentist. You know, we, we had a, a, a rich life. But inside of their house, it was like a, a terror movie. Uh, I witnessed my mom bleeding uh, nearly daily. You know, my father would do domestic violence. And when I say domestic violence, I'm talking about extreme violence, like extreme. My first memory in life, I was four to five years old, and my father was holding a nine millimeters in my mother's mouth, uh, saying that he was going to kill her. And, uh, you know, I've experienced things like that uh, all my childhood. Um, my mother then became extremely abusive to us as well, uh, physically abusive and emotional abusive. My father left when I was seven years old. He disappeared for four and a half years. I didn't know if he was alive or dead. Uh, and when he returned, he returned pretending that nothing ever happened. And he showed me a picture of a sister that was already three years old that I didn't even know that I had. So I was always looking for a solution. Uh, for a way to get out of here. Uh, and that's where drugs came in and, and, and helped me massively in the beginning. Now, a university lecturer, Liz Jones also had a painful family upbringing. It contributed to the addiction problems both her and her sister would experience. My mum and dad divorced when I was like six months old or something. And um, she remarried someone when I was three or four and he was awful but it turned out that he'd been sexually abusing my sister um from like the age of 10 or 12 or something he used to beat me up and stuff like that but when my sister was 12 or 13 or whatever she started dabbling um so i'd go into the bedroom and stuff and she'd be shoving some bits under the bed and stuff like that um so i think i first tried drugs when i was like 10 and yeah so my stepdad beat the crap out of me and then he'd send me to my room so I'd just be then taking magic mushrooms, like find whatever she'd got stashed in a room and I'd be taking drugs as a kind of screw you to him. You think you've got control on me, but I'm sat up here doing this. It, it didn't come out until I was 13, what he'd been doing to her, um, doing to my sister, the sexual abuse, at which time he was taken to court. You know, she went to the police, he was taken to court and she left the family home. Weirdly, my mum remained with him 
Um, she had the big, and I understand it now more, but um, it's, you know, it's very difficult to believe that someone that you brought into the family will do that. Um, so there was quite, there was a lot of tension. My mum choosing to stay with him initially. So my sister was gone. She was living in a flat and I felt so ostracised, I suppose, in the home. So I just started spending more and more time around at my sister's flat. And she was she was living with like goths and punks and stuff and a very drug focused lifestyle. So then I was I was just doing it more and more. Then I felt so grown up hanging around with people that were in the twenties, age thirteen kind of thing. Um, so yeah, I mean I was going to school on acid. I was doing my drama license on acid and things like that. Liz mentioned that her sister still struggles with her trauma, so we've reached out to see if we can help. For iconic fundraiser Speedo Mick, it was resentment at his dad that fueled a lot of his problems before he was finally able to let it go. What were you angry at? Well, I was ang- I, I was angry. Yeah, I was angry at my dad a lot, you know. I was angry at my dad. And, uh, and I've got to say, like, we, we, we get on today, we really do. You know what I mean? And, and, and I've had to, it took me a long time to let go of all that stuff, mm-hmm. you know, but I don't want to be the person who's harming anybody. And uh, I found so, uh, no place in my heart to, to be able to forgive him. Mm-hmm. And, I, I, and I couldn't for a long time, and that was like a massive weight. It was taking things away from me. The resentment and mm. the pain I was feeling was just ruminating, you know, every day, all the time. I wanted him to know, but that wouldn't have helped. Tony Atwood, founder of Hope and Vision Charity, has another heartbreaking story of a fractious parental relationship. It involves abuse as well as bereavement, but sadly doesn't stop there. It all started, I suppose, in my childhood. Like most, I suppose, family dysfunction... Trauma, childhood experiences, former beliefs and more coping strategies. My dad drank. When he drank, he was violent. And there was a lot of arguing in the house. I think even my earliest memory, my first memory, I woke up in the middle of the night and there's screaming and shouting. I run down the stairs and my dad's got a knife to my mum's throat. That's my earliest memory and the fear... I felt in that moment was paralysing to the point I tried to scream, nothing come out. I was muted with fear. And I think the rest of my life, I didn't want to admit to myself or the world I was that scared, I was that little boy, and I tried to be something I wasn't to survive. And I, and I grew up hating, hating my dad, you know, and this is the first figure of authority in my life. Um, so... I struggle with authority. He passed away when I was 12 years old of cancer. And I didn't deal with that loss very well. I had already messed about with drink. My mum always loved me, you know, the best way she knew how. And through her concern for my drinking and using at 12 years old, she took me to the GP and dropped a bombshell on me, asked a question if I knew my biological father. At that point, I didn't know that my dad that passed away wasn't my biological father, and that shattered. Not only did it shatter my identity, it shattered my trust in my mum, my dad. Like, everything could have been a lie. I was the family secret. I was separating myself from, from my family, my brothers. I didn't want to be. I didn't feel a part of that, so I sought it elsewhere. 
I didn't get the love and acceptance and belonging at home. So I went out and tried to get that in my in my associates, my group of friends. Ultimately, I was, I think, my whole life desiring my father's love elsewhere, and it was never met. I never got that. And I started selling drugs, selling cannabis at an early age. That met a need in me. It fulfilled a need. My phone was always ringing. I was wanted. I was needed. I was synthetically getting my needs met. I know a lot of people that I've spoken to have found comfort in using drugs because the pain of abuse and memories becomes too much. Mm. So they almost self-medicate. And it's really tragic that as a young child or young person, if you experience some form of trauma in your childhood, it completely blows all boundaries and thoughts of safety and protection out of the window, whether it's your primary caregiver that's been abusive or a friend of the family. And I think it really does impact the way that people then view the world. My experience, apart from self-medication, it's also about self-worth. You know, it's about what your life is worth. You know, when you drink or take drugs or take risks in your life, a lot of that's to do with how you feel about what the value of your life is. A couple of the people we spoke to told us about how they were unknowingly actually involved in their family's criminal behaviour. This can have long-lasting consequences. Here's Jane Shea again. You know, I remember my mum and dad, they set up this thing once where the house got robbed, uh, like a fake insurance claim. And they didn't tell me. And I, what happened, <laughs> I thought it was my fault because I'd made my mum come out that day and there was something wrong with the door knocker and I'd said, oh, please, 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 come on down, come, I want to go shopping, blah, blah, blah. And when we got home, the house had been robbed. But I found out like 20 years later from my brother I was speaking to him about it and he said, I don't know what you're talking about, Jane. That wasn't real. That was an insurance job. And I just felt like, well, I, I felt that was my fault for like 20 years. Oh. Oh, <laughs> no. But I think they didn't tell me because I was like this straight goer in between all of this chaos and I couldn't cope with it, Julie. Ex-offender turned actor Michael Balligan told us about his mum going to prison when he was still at school. They wanted me to serve as an altar boy in my church, in my school, it was a Catholic school. And my mum was meant to come and like, cause she was so religious when I told you she loved religion mm -hmm. and, I, and that was really for her. I wanted her to see me serving, you know, in the, in the, the gear candle. and the candle walking behind the priest and holding the little bells and dingling them. But then she, that's the day she got nicked. Mm -hmm. That is the same day that she got nicked. Before that though, He'd been taught to keep her criminal operations a secret. So my mum, she'd go and she was obviously selling drugs and she would go away for like three weeks to like, she wasn't, she wasn't bringing it in the country. She was organising it. Do you know what I mean? She was organising these shipments or whatever. And she'd go away a lot and she'd be like, right, I'm going to go away for three weeks. You're not to open the door to anyone. Look for the keyhole. If someone you don't know, don't answer it. I'm here, I'm doing this and I'm doing that. And we'd, she'd test us. She'd be like, all right, I'm knocking on the door, pretend who am I? And she'd ask these questions and we'd, and we'd have to answer them correctly. Do you know what I'm saying? And that was instilled into us. And it's weird because I never remembered that till literally about three weeks ago. My oldest, my, I said to my little sister, I was like, some of the stuff we have to do is a bit weird, isn't it? And she was like, yeah. She was like, we got taught to lie. 
from wow. a young age. Mm-hmm. She said it to me three weeks ago and I remember thinking, fucking hell, she's right. Michael went on to recount his experiences visiting his mum in prison. My vision of prison was orange jumpsuits yeah, and yeah. bars. Because obviously I'd been watching films and TV. First time they took me to see my mum, I was like, this ain't prison. Because there's no bars. They weren't wearing orange clothes. We all sat in this room. Like, you know, the visiting room. Yeah. It's almost like a rehab, rather. Yeah. yeah. And then I was like, where are you? She's like, oh, I'm working. Wow. So I was like, okay, cool. She's working. But, but I remember thinking, why is there coppers walking around the room? And then I looked to my left and there was like two women kissing over there. And I'm thinking, as I was, I was a child, didn't it? I wasn't, this was, this was like in the 90s. I remember thinking, what, what's going on? And then all of a sudden there's people grabbing them up and yeah. bending them on the floor. I was thinking, what's, I remember thinking, they're just kissing, like. Mm. I was like, do you know what I mean? I was a child, didn't it? But obviously looking back, they were, some, they were passing something over or whatever. Mm. I remember thinking, it's definitely not a prison, but it's definitely a bit of a weird place. And then obviously my, the teachers, I think my dad turned up. That's what happened. I hadn't seen him for years and he turned up just to see us. Because he's always come to the school. And they were like, yeah, like, we think his mum's not around and his mum's in prison. Da, 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 da. So he was the first person that actually told me yeah. that she was in prison and she got 15 years. Wow. He was the first, that was the first wow. I'd heard. Talking about this, is we've mentioned this before, but it's like it's normalised, you know? Whether it's you're searching for a lost car because your mum's too pissed to know where she's parked or, or whether you're holding a steering wheel to drive your dad off a, off a motorway. It's normalised, isn't it? It is normalised and I think about even your mum, you know, you're running late to school or your mum says, oh, just say this or just say that. Yeah, yeah. So it's teaching you from a young age yeah. that... Lie. So I always remember, well, it's a white lie, it's fine. Well, yeah. what, you know, what's the difference between a lie and a white lie? What makes Well, they it... would say it doesn't hurt anyone, you know, and we still we still use that. Not lie, but not tell the truth, mm-hmm. not say where you've been mm-hmm. or, or whatever it is. And what that does is blurs a boundary. It starts to blur a boundary. So then when you are challenged on something and you lie, you're told off for that. Mm-hmm. But it was... So it just sort of creates this unknowing and this confusion. And I can really see that for what it is now. And I have to really try and remember not to do that with my own children. It's important to remember that all of the people we've been listening to have overcome their difficulties to lead positive, inspiring lives. It's time to find out how they did it. For Michael, it was a change of attitude towards his family background that helped him get his life onto a positive path. My thinking was, my mum went to prison. She sold drugs. So I was always going to go down this road. And I was like, life's not fair. My mum's fucked up. She fucked up. That's why I fucked up. And that's where it is. This is who I am. And I'm a criminal. I'm a career criminal. This is how I get money. Some people go, that's how I should justify it. Some people go to work. Some people commit crime. I'm one of those people. That's all it is. And then I remember like that sentence, that nine sentence, I remember I used to do a lot of thinking. I was like, from what, from all, from all the people that I know that have lived this life, there's always two outcomes. They either get lifed off for a murder or they get shot or they get pitched or whatever or killed in it. And I remember thinking, I don't want to, I don't want to go out like that. <laughs> I don't want to go out like that. And I remember thinking, but I know I'm not stupid, isn't it? I know I'm not stupid and I, can, I can't pretend that I am anymore. Mm. And I'm thinking, yes, I remember realizing that actually, when you, you get to a point in life where you are the master of your own destiny. You get to a point in your life 
where you are, the, you're in, you're in the driver's seat. And I remember thinking, fuck, I'm in the driver's seat and I'm in prison and I, and I don't want to be here. So I need to like drive to a different place. Taking responsibility for his own destiny would lead Michael to a career in acting, which is producing some incredible work. Tony Atwood feels that taking responsibility for his actions was key to him overcoming addiction and offending. The first part of my life was pointing the figure at everybody else and blaming them. When today I know it's my response to those situations that's the problem, not not the people, although it could have been better circumstances. Speedo Mick also found a change of mindset was what he needed to let go of the resentment he felt towards his father. They now enjoy a positive relationship. Well, I'll tell you why I done it in the end. I know exactly why I done it in the end. It wasn't for him or for anybody else. It was for me in the end. Mm. Because carrying that round was like... It pollutes, mm. your, it pollutes, it pollutes your experience of life. Yeah, and yeah, I'm sick. I've, I've already lost loads of... I've lost yeah. loads of years in, in suffering... Yeah. Suffering, suffering, and I was still suffering for years. You know what I mean? And I didn't want to suffer anymore. That's why I come to the conclusion I've got to let this go, mate. Yeah. You know what I mean? And because I want to live life to the full, you know. And I struggle enough as it is, being struggling myself lately. You know what I mean? With my me mental health and and stuff like that. So uh, yeah, I had to find a way to let it go, and I did in the end. And I done it for me. Yeah, no, I know you that. Know, I don't do uh, this. For a long time, I've done everything else for everybody else, mm. you know, and now I've found a a place in my heart for me, you know what I mean? It's, cause, uh, it's the hardest person to look after, though, isn't it? It is me. It's you, I can see from your spirit that you'd do anything for anyone, but yeah, when yeah. it comes to looking after yourself, it's tough. I, I was unable to do that for a long time, and that kept me down as well unable to accept the feelings or have the feelings, the emotions, and not react badly. You know, you know, to the world, and and that's changed. And for all the negative family stories you've heard in this episode, family played a hugely positive role in some of our guest turnarounds. For Jane, her kids were a huge motivation. My kids are never going to go away from me. I love my kids. Um, but what actually was happening was I had a seven-year-old daughter who had come to me and said she didn't want to live with me anymore. My house was being filled up with people that were using. And I and, and I remember it was specifically, it was her birthday, and I decided I was going to do this lovely thing for her. But what happened was it didn't happen like that. There were people in my house. I couldn't get rid of them. Um, the addiction was kind of there. There were people using needles in my son's bedroom. And she went to her dad's and I begged her dad, I said to her dad, please let me try again. Please let me have her again. And the same thing happened and I couldn't sort it out. And as much as I wanted to give my daughter this lovely birthday, I couldn't manage it. I couldn't get away from that. So, and I remember her saying to me, are you upset with what I've, with me saying this to you? And I said, yeah, I am upset but I'm really, really happy that you've been able to say it to me. And and the reason she was able to say that was because I'd had this four years where I was clean. So as much as I was using, I really knew that I didn't want my kids to go back into this life where they were lying, pretending that their mum was clean, going back to their dad and having to tell him all of this stuff. Liz was helped out by friends who taught her some priceless lessons when it came to rebuilding her relationship with her struggling son. Weirdly, it wasn't my family that helped in that. It was, I'd, I'd got with a, a really old friend and his mum and dad were millionaires, which is helpful. 
And so they used to go and score for us. And we were taking about 150 quid's worth of heroin and crack a day. Um, and they'd go and score in big amounts and then, you know, package it up into daily allowance for us and stuff. And I think that it was that, that, you know, seeing them doing that for me, that was what made me want to stop. And um, they, they, they just told me they believed in me. So it wasn't my family, um, but it was family in a sense. And, and now, obviously, my family, you know, I've got a son who's now 16. Um, he's had issues with drugs in, in probably about three years ago. He got involved in county lines. Um, and I think the way that Dennis and Anne, who sadly we lost late last year, um, just thinking about how they were with me has really helped me to rebuild the relationship with my son and talk to him about my experience. And then, you know, and he's come through it now. He's, he's just doing his GCSEs and he's, he's going to college in September and he's got a moped and all that. So, yeah, it's uh, fam- I think family's been a really sort of contributing factor to mental health issues and everything, but also a really strong supportive factor as well. Wow. I'm I'm in awe actually of you and your strength sitting there and I've got really similar background to you also in recovery, same sort of family history. From that early on having all of that stuff happen, it's it's a, it's traumatic, isn't it? But how bloody fantastic are you to be sat here today reflecting on your son who's sixteen, what an amazing role model he's got in a mum like you to be able to show him the right path is fantastic. Raf, who's recently been ordained as a priest, was helped by his mum. She discovered Al-Anon, a support group for the families and friends of alcoholics. So what happened to me is uh, four years before I got clean, my mother uh, fell off buying a shotgun to kill herself. Uh, she just couldn't deal with my addiction. Um, she, she, she was talking to my siblings about my funeral. They all believed I was going to die. Uh, I looked like that. Uh, I was literally like, people thought I had a terminal cancer or something like that. And my mom uh, heard of a meeting called uh, Al-Anon in Brazil. And she, four years before I got clean, she found that fellowship. And she started to understand that. That is a quote for family members. Uh, when I worked for the Ford Trust, I told all of my clients that if an active addict is happy with you, you are probably doing something wrong and being manipulated. Um, so my mom realized that everything she was doing to me, my active addiction, was out of her own guilt, was out of her own shame. Uh, she believed that it was her fault that I was an addict, and she was trying somehow. You know, and my, my family realized that they were like just coving, enabling, doing things that I should be doing and taking responsibilities that I should be taking. Uh, and they did with the best intentions, but what that did is it, it contributed for me to continue as I was. And uh, long story short, my mom found Alanon. She realized that she wasn't helping, that she was helping herself, that she was helping her sense of shame and guilt, but that she was helping to kill me. And uh, one day my mother started to change. Do you know when you know your mom and just the way she looks at you is different? And the way she talks to you is different. She was no longer making my bed. She was no longer making me dinner. She was no longer paying my debts. She was no, and, and one day, uh, four years before I got clean, uh, I drove back home. Uh, I remember parking my car outside of her housing wheel. She was crying like a baby. And she said, uh, I love you so much. You are my youngest child, but I will no longer allow you to kill yourself and your family as a result of your addiction. I want you out of my life. And uh, there was a lot of black beanbags with all my stuff in her garden. 
And looking back, that was the beginning of, of a different journey. Uh, life started to hit on me. And I was the first time faced with the destruction and the problems that addiction was causing in my life. And uh, my mom planted the seed. She spoke about rehab. She spoke about NA and AA. And four years later, uh, I found NA. That's and amazing. Your mum led you to rec- I mean, it's just amazing, isn't it? Your mum's yeah. journey of finding her own recovery. Yeah. In terms of family recovery, enabled you enabled you in the right sense to find exactly. your recovery. That's so exactly. powerful. Yeah. So, George, just for the listeners and also for me, I'm presuming that NA is very similar to AA. Yeah. So NA, Narcotics Anonymous, was founded around 40 years ago and it came after um, Alcoholics Anonymous. And it's basically the same principle, same 12 steps, just worded differently. And the NA program is complete abstinence from all mind and mood altering, including alcohol. Mm-hmm. Cool. Mary Claire O'Brien received invaluable support from family and friends while she was inside. Seeing other prisoners without access to that kind of support was what prompted her to found New Leaf. I saw myself as superior to these women because I'd had an education, because I'd had jobs, I'd, you know, I'd done all right on the outside, but actually. I was exactly the same as those women and it just, yeah, I dropped the ego, I dropped the bravado, I got honest. But it was through my family and friends um, holding me in that space uh, and and then that was where the sadness came from and the willingness to kind of support people still trapped in the criminal justice system because they don't have that, a lot of them. A lot of them don't have family that can travel and visit them or don't have a functional family to support them. So who else is going to love those people? We can. We can love them a little bit and, you know, hopefully put some of those boundaries around them and tell them that support's on the outside if and when they get out and that's what it's all about, really. Since turning his back on crime, Corey Johnson has worked with the police. Hearing that again really struck a chord with my own experience with my son, who I am so proud of. Some of my team's been working up at Hen in the last two months to like training the police and stuff yeah, like that. Amazing. So, yeah, we've gone from like literally hating the police to working with them and training them. So, it's, yeah, it's a full, full circle. Full, yeah, full circle. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's literally, now right. I can't, I never knew so much police in my life. Like, I got yeah. them on speed now. I can't believe it. Uh, yeah, yeah. I've got to share it. Ex offender, young offender, addict, you know, full on any, anything that made me feel good, I'd take it regardless. Yeah. My son's a police officer in the Met. Oh, wicked, man. See, and things like that, imagine, yeah. And see, from that, that's kind of like where even like my little ones, like, they're not on the street, they're not in gang and all the rest of it. And like, we're like third generation, buddy, yeah. thing. So for them to be the fourth generation, they're in the yeah. complete thing. That's the actual mold of it. Heal your trauma and you'll heal five generations to come. Every time we listen to those guys speak, or I listen to you talk about your past, it inspires me because I just think it's such a brave journey to take, you know. I agree, and I think listening to all of the experiences from these guys that we've spoken to, bravery is a common theme that runs throughout. No matter what their childhood trauma has been or their family experience has been or their own personal experience of addiction or offending, they've all had to really be brave to step out of that, to create a new life for themselves, to then pass that down to their children. It's been a fantastic episode, actually. I've learned so much. 
If you're interested in hearing more about the More Than My Past campaign and viewing dozens more inspirational stories, check out the campaign website, morethanmypast.org.uk. And if you've enjoyed this podcast, please tell your friends, subscribe, and look out for future episodes. Thank <laughs> you.